have a problem, guys, with that phrase, identity politics. These issues that they're trying to diminish and demean are the very issues that will define our identity as Americans. Welcome to What's Left by BuzzFeed News Opinion, where we talk with people at the crossroads of the new American politics. I'm your host, Sarah Leonard in New York City. Today, we are talking about identity politics. It's a favorite target of the right. The Democratic Party has been captured by academic identity politics. And the left. This way of looking at race, this way of looking at identity comes from white supremacist imperialist systems. But where does the idea come from? And why can't we stop talking about it? Will it doom the left to political failure? or lead to the rise of white nationalism? To find out, we're talking with Barbara Smith, who coined the term identity politics back in the 1970s. And we'll talk with Francis Fukuyama, the political theorist who once declared the end of history about his new take on identity politics. Barbara Smith is an author, activist, and independent scholar. In the 1970s, she was one of the authors of the Combahee River Collective Statement, which is credited with coining the term identity politics. Smith has been the subject of two books, Ain't Gonna Let Nobody Turn Me Around, edited by Alethea Jones and Virginia Eubanks, and How We Get Free, Black Feminism and the Combahee River Collective by Kianga Yamada-Taylor. She joins me from Albany, New York. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thanks for having me. It's great to talk with you. So what was the the sort of reason behind the founding of the Combahee River Collective? Well, the time period that you mentioned was the robust beginning of the second wave of uh, the women's movement in the United States. If those of us who were uh, Black and other women of color too wanted to try to figure out how these new developments around the status of women, women's freedom, women's liberation, how it applied to us, There was an organization called the National Black Feminist Organization that started, uh, or at least announced its um, beginning in uh, 73. There was a huge conference in um, New York City, and by huge, I'm talking about several hundred people who came from all over the country. And both my sister Beverly and I attended that conference. We uh, were encouraged to go back to our our respective uh, homes. Um, and to start organizing chapters of the National Black Feminist Organizations. When I returned to Boston, then we started uh, reconvening, and we pretty much within a year, as I said, are so that like by 75, uh, we had decided that we wanted to be independent uh, from the National Black Feminist Organization, and we uh, named ourselves the the Combahee River Collective, which I've recently found out is accurately pronounced Combahee. So we've been saying it incorrectly all these years. Well, I feel like you've come up with a new pronunciation that is the pronunciation, given the reputation it now has through this statement. And and what was it? What what was what was Comedy River Collective named after? Right, it's the way that uh, young women from the Northeast would probably pronounce it if they didn't know any better. Anyway, um, that was a raid uh, on the uh, Cumbie River in South Carolina. That was. Uh, planned and led by Harriet Tubman during the Civil War. She was a scout for the Union Army, 
that uh, raid on the Cumbie River freed over 750 enslaved Black uh, people. So we thought, like, let's name ourselves after an an intervention for liberation as opposed to naming ourselves after a person. So give me a real quick uh, picture of the collective. So how many women, what defined these women, what brought people together into this specific collective in 1974? Well, in 74, we were still a chapter of the National Black Feminist Organization, and we were doing uh, what many women's groups at that time were doing. We were doing consciousness raising but doing consciousness raising from a black feminist uh, perspective. It was a time that was uh, politically very um, fraught in Boston because it was a time of race war around the desegregation of the Boston public schools. That was court-ordered desegregation. So here we were uh, practicing intersectionality before the term was coined, looking at all the kinds of oppressions that women of color face and that communities of color face, and we are doing it in the context of all-out race war. So in your uh, statement, in the Kamahi River Collective statement, you wrote, um, you were writing about why you were focusing on your own identity as Black lesbian feminists, and you wrote, this focusing upon our own oppression is embodied in the concept of identity politics. We believe that the most profound and potentially most radical politics come directly out of our own identity as opposed to working to end somebody else's oppression. So there is, I think, a critique of what people think of as identity politics now that says this means that you can only talk about yourself and you can only fight for yourself and you should stay in your lane. Is that what you meant? Actually, we meant quite the opposite. There's so many misperceptions and distortions about what identity politics means. What interests me during this period is that the uh, misunderstandings come both from the right and from the left. What we meant was that Black women, specifically, had a right to build a political analysis that would, of course, lead to a political practice, an actual political organizing that reflected the reality that we actually were experiencing. That was not a widely held or shared point of view because within the Black liberation movement, the Black power uh, movement, the Black nationalist movement, there was no assumption that Black women had any particular set of concerns, issues, or experiences or oppressions that needed to be addressed. And also, of course, in the white women's movement, there was uh, generally low, there was generally low consciousness about race and racism. So we were not saying that nobody else mattered. What we were saying is that we want to build something that is appropriate and accurate for us. and, And come to think of it, if we deal with all the oppressions that affect us as women, as a people of color, as people from working class backgrounds, uh, and in some cases as lesbians, then we'll be dealing with most of it. So if the criticisms or the misunderstandings are coming from the left and the right, let's kind of dig into those. So what is the misunderstanding currently that's coming from the left? I think it's what you said pretty much, which is that it's a very narrow kind of self-focused, me, 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 me kind of politics. One of the things that characterized the Combahee River Collective, and people will find that out from reading the statement, from reading uh, Kianga Yamada Taylor's book, is that we were all about organizing. 
and activism and practice. We are not like a think tank. We wanted to transform material reality. We wanted to change power structures and challenge power structures. So we were not just thinking of some nice ideas. I think uh, in years that have uh, followed, particularly because of the academic kind of involvement with Black feminism and uh, people who are not involved in organizing, often they just think that that's what we are uh, uh, what what we meant by identity politics, that you're not like a vegan, you know, um, native of, uh, of uh, Oklahoma, you know, whose uh, great-grandfather was, you know, a sodbuster or whatever, then... <laughs> then you, you cannot can't, speak to sodbusting issues. Yeah, you can't be in this group, you know. And we met, as I said, quite the opposite. We stretched ourselves. We believed in coalition work. And we often showed up in places that people didn't expect to see us. So since you brought the conversation around to to actual practice of your politics, so like, what did that look like on the ground? Were you primarily working with people who they're like, yes, we get your analysis, we're on board. Um, we would like to be part of a movement that... Uh, that recognizes your analysis of how black women are uniquely oppressed or who are who are sort of buying into your project? Or were you working with people who kind of didn't have a clue, but you had some stuff in common? What did this look like? I think it was all of the above. I think that we really did stretch ourselves, as I said, and it depended on who it was. Some of the people who we had most in common with politically, I'm not talking about identity-wise, I'm talking about politically, were socialist feminists in uh, the Boston area. Uh, We did work with other women of color who were not of African heritage uh, because they could see and we could see the commonality that we had. There were some people who did not like us at all. And uh, just to describe them in uh, one word, uh, they were most likely to be homophobes. So... (laughs) So, yeah, we were not the popular girls. We were not popular... (laughs) Um, I've never been popular, never will be, but the thing is, that's okay. Uh- <laughs> right, because what you're describing is really not, it, it's literally not a solidarity of identity. It is a solidarity of things that you agree should happen in the world. It's a solidarity of politics and a vision. Exactly, but the reason that we came up with the concept of identity politics is because no one thought that it was of any value that it was important or even allowable for black and other women of color to define a political agenda for ourselves. That's why we asserted the need for identity politics. We said we could pull out of our lived experiences as people who are multiply oppressed a political analysis and practice. That's what we were saying. And people have taken that concept of identity politics and run with it. And sometimes they run right off the cliff. Right. Um, Because I think one of the criticisms that has also been made of identity politics from the left, sticking to the left for a minute, is that it's gotten picked up in all kinds of ways, including by liberal politicians, for example, um, the term identity politics and also the term intersectionality. I was just blown away, fell off my chair when I saw Hillary Clinton in a presidential debate referring to intersectionality. (laughs) Um, And this was really surreal. This had been a very radical term. And so one critique from the left is that 
identity politics allows you to obscure class. You can kind of worry about everything but class. And that's what we were seeing with someone like Hillary Clinton, who is certainly no anti-capitalist, but felt very comfortable using these terms that have a more radical origin point. Why do you think terms like identity politics and intersectionality have been able to be picked up by people who sort of drop class out of the equation? Um, First of all, they haven't done their homework, so they haven't gone to the source. And because these politics that we're talking about today, that is the um, intersectional identity politics, original identity politics, not the current way that the term is used, of women of color, these are not mainstream, as I said, we are not the popular people. So these are not popular concepts that are going to get a lot of play in places that do mass uh, kinds of communication. I know this because of the letters that I've written to the New York Times on occasion when people like David Brooks completely blow the understanding of what the term is. And I always say in those letters that never get published, I know what the term means because I was one of the three people who came up with it. You mentioned David Brooks, and this really brings us around to to sort of the right use of the term identity politics or critique of identity politics. What is useful about the term identity politics to the right? Like, what are they doing with it? They see it as a buzzword or a kind of a substitute word for people who they do not wish to see have any kind of power or any kind of agency uh, in U.S. society. No kind of empowerment. You know, these are the people we must keep on the margins. Those people who are talking about identity politics, they actually think they deserve a place uh, in uh, the halls of power and where decisions are being made. They actually think they deserve that. And we don't like that. So I think that they understand that that a way that identity politics can be understood and defined is those other people, those marginalized people that we need to keep down, the underclass, you know, the women, the queer. So the, the, uh, the, people, the people of color, not to use worse words that they probably would use. So that's what I think they make of it. Right. And one of the things I've recently seen from the right, there's a new article actually by Francis Fukuyama, where he writes that the focus on identity politics by people left of center has actually given rise to identity as a framework, which has now been claimed by white people, too. And so you get sort of white nationalism, white identity politics. <laughs> Help us. <laughs> so what what do you make of that, though? Like, can there be a white identity politics? There shouldn't be, not under white supremacy. Now, if we live somewhere else, which would probably not be anywhere on Earth, but if we live somewhere where white supremacy was not the uh, organizing, one of the organizing principles of uh, social and economic relations and institutions writ large and in every way that you can think, then maybe, yes, we encourage people. We used to do things in Kabahi, as I said, where people didn't necessarily expect us to show up. One of the things that we were asked to do during uh, that period of the 1970s was to help uh, organizations, sometimes organizations that were newly forming, to deal with issues of race. uh, But these were feminists. These are serious, committed feminists who wanted to do better 
around racial politics. We would listen to their, you know, Ajita, their ex ex about being white. And we just sat there and dealt with them because we wanted a better women's movement. We wanted a better women's movement. So we put ourselves in that position and we encouraged people as I would, as I would do to this day, I would encourage people to know who they are, where they came from and what it means. Right. And there's a really interesting trend. You say, you know, you would do these trainings and you would listen to people's angst about being white. It sounds like a lot of work, um, emotional as well as time consuming. And I think there is a trend. You see it a lot. Maybe this is a trend that only lives on Twitter, but there is a trend in which all kinds of activists across the the spectrum will say, you know, it's not my job to explain feminism to you. It's not my job to explain anti-racism to you. Like, you, white man, for the love of God, stop taking up my time and go read a book about this and learn about it. It's not my job to do this labor, hearing about your angst or telling you how to be better, and sort of framing it as um, as labor, really, in that way. And I wonder what you make of that that trend. I find it a little unsettling. Uh, to put it mildly, because um, it doesn't really speak to how you build solidarity. Uh, and it also doesn't speak to how you uh, become deeply educated around the issues uh, that you say that you are organizing to change for the better. So uh, anything that's virtual, you're not in the room, you don't see the person's expression, uh, you have no sense of their personality or where they're, what, what path they're walking. You have no idea really what kinds of people they are and what makes them a person who is worthy of perhaps connecting to. I'm not talking about bigots. I'm not talking about hate mongers. I'm not talking about terrorists. I'm not talking about anyone who takes their uh, whiteness to those extreme levels. But most people are not on the extremes. When people talk about a sort of white identity politics, I think often they're talking about white people who are poor or downwardly mobile who are being sort of um, recruited to a white nationalist politics and are being uh, told to scapegoat immigrants or people of color for economic problems. They're seeking a sort of white identity that will relieve them of the the pain and uh, lack of power that they feel. Like, what does identity politics have to tell us about this situation? I think uh, certainly the definition, our definition in, uh, of uh, identity politics would not lead one to those kinds of attitudes and actions. But I do think that the confusion, the this ball of confusion that most people in our nation have about race in particular, that it's really hard to see oneself in that cauldron, you know, full of just toads and, you know, and all kinds of things that you don't really want to be dealing with. It's hard to see oneself in that cauldron of race and not, and, and to be able to figure out how do I feel okay about being a white person without making myself the opposite of everything that people of color assert that they are standing for and wish to have. This country has pitted uh, racial groups against each other from day one. So it's not just a recent phenomenon. We have some different language to describe, perhaps, where people are going, but it's not truly new. 
Right. Uh, it's uh, it's baked in, and because uh, there's never been any effort uh, in this nation to examine and then to d- dismantle white supremacy in any very very comprehensive way, we continue to live with it. But we had you know during you know uh, the period of the mid twentieth uh, century was an attempt to change the social status of black people in particular, to have that social status in some way conform to constitutional rights in this nation. And that happened. That happened. Uh, But did it uh, topple white supremacy? Hell no. White supremacy is just as healthy now as it ever was. And with this fool, you know, who's squatting in the White House, he's fanning those flames. And when you do not benefit when your class status does not bring benefits of being white, then what else do you hold on to? It's just, it's, it's really a mess, but um, it's not what we meant by identity politics by any means. So given that the flames are fanned, what can Kambahi's identity politics tell us about how to organize now? And are you seeing organizing that you actually think comes from the sort of analysis that you had. The term is so prevalent, but where do you see it? I think what people might get from Combahee if they were open to it and to the Combahee River collective statement is a sense of hope. Uh, Particularly if they have a historical perspective. I always want people to know that we wrote that and we were doing that work in the context of the most extreme racial polarization. And in a city that to this day is known for being incredibly racist, which is Boston and the Boston area. So we had a lot of uh, vision, uh, a, a lot of uh, political optimism. So that's one thing that people could get from that. I've gone for the past two years uh, to the Socialism Conference in Chicago, and I take a lot of encouragement from seeing uh, the young people who are at conferences like that. And I was invited to go to those conferences. So obviously it seems like they want to hear something about, you know, the good old days of Kambahi and and of early black feminine. I actually think that's one of the cool things about politics right now is because people had to look back to find a radical politics after this period of sort of like not having radical politics. You know, people, it's actually very intergenerational politics. People actually want the knowledge. And with that, I really want to thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Sarah. I so enjoyed this. Me too. For Barbara Smith, identity politics is all about building working relationships with people who aren't like you. But that's not how it's viewed outside of the left. Francis Fukuyama is a professor of political science at Stanford University and has been one of the country's most recognizable public intellectuals for some three decades. His new book, Identity, The Demand for Dignity and the Politics of Resentment, is out this September from FSG. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. So I want to ask the most important question first, which is that some six years ago, we learned that you had built a small drone. (laughs) You said, I want to have my drone before the government makes them illegal. Do you have a drone army at Stanford? 
You know, I still have a couple of drones that I built back then. I haven't flown them in several years because I actually find it quite anxiety provoking. They're very dangerous. If they hit somebody, they're very easy to lose. Uh, and if you lose one, you lose, uh, you know, a big investment. So I've, I've, uh, I've turned to uh, cheaper and safer hobbies. Ah, okay. Well, that's a relief to me as well, actually. Um, it, it's a little stressful to think of uh, an army of drones surveilling Stanford University. <laughs> so I want to dive right into your latest article. And you say we're living in an era of identity politics and that this has come with some problems, namely the abandonment of universal programs and also, you say most troublingly, the rise of white identity politics. So can you tell me what you mean by identity politics and what the problem is here? I think that what's been going on in global politics is that, you know, the, the left and right have been defined during the 20th century largely by economic class, with the, the, the left wanting more equality and the right wanting more freedom. And increasingly, that's being replaced by a politics of these assertions that you're not recognizing me, you're not recognizing uh, my dignity. And I think that uh, American politics has... Uh, increasingly grown polarized uh, around identity issues rather than a, around the traditional left-right, uh, you know, dichotomies that, that traditionally uh, split Republicans and Democrats. Uh, and I'm going to jump in and ask, can you say what some of these issues are? Beginning in the 1960s, you had a number of big social movements by African-Americans, the civil rights movement, the feminist movement, uh, gays and lesbians, the disabled. There's a whole series of groups that had been marginalized in American society. They were not recognized. They were not accorded equal dignity, according to the promise of the Declaration of Independence. And so they began to, you know, agitate for that kind of recognition. So it was perfectly legitimate and, and justified. But I think that over time, the agenda of progressives in the United States began to be defined by these smaller groups. And I think that, in a way, that has provoked a response on the right now, with the rise of the alt-right and white nationalism abetted by a president that has succeeded in irritating this issue, this resentment of particularly working-class, you know, white voters that feel resentful about you know, the government giving presumed benefits to minorities and women at their expense. And I think that that process, one of them quite understandable and justified, the other, I think, probably a lot less so, uh, has really polarized American politics. And it's, it's, it's led to a really deep dysfunction in our ability to actually act as a, a democracy in which we feel we have commonly shared values we're able to deliberate, we're able to solve problems and so forth. To me, this doesn't feel new. It seems mm -hmm. very much like what we've seen actually uh, rise and fall in its public expression throughout the 20th century. And in describing the 20th century as a time when things were very economically focused, obviously the political movement square in the middle of the 20th century is the civil rights movement. So if we are sort of looking at this phenomenon currently of white nationalism, to me this looks less like a response to some something on the left and more like something, you know, you can trace to people like Lee Atwater cultivating 
through the Southern strategy for many, many years on purpose. Um, and, you know, there's the sort of classic quote, I'm sure you're very familiar with it, but for our listeners, you have Outwater talking about Reagan and the Republicans and saying you start by by basically shouting the N-word. That eventually backfires. So you say stuff like forced busing, states' rights, and all that stuff. You're getting so abstract now that you're talking about cutting taxes, and a byproduct of them is that blacks get hurt worse than whites. So this has been a sort of intentional Republican strategy for many, many years. And it seems to me that that might be a place to trace this sort of racial resentment to as opposed to the left. Yeah, I mean, if you're saying that racism has existed and it's been actually much stronger you know, in other periods of American history, there's no question about it. That's been uh, a trope, you know, uh, among Republican candidates. I do think that there's something quite different about uh, the current version of it. The first is that they really have adopted the framing of the left-wing identity politics. So, you know, 50 years ago, if you're a white American, you didn't think of yourself as a white American. You just said, I'm an American. I'm kind of a median American. I don't Whereas know if now, that's true. Now, no, a lot, now, I think a lot of the language is saying we white people are uh, also a persecuted minority. Our rights uh, are not being respected. Uh, we are invisible to the elites, to the mainstream media. And so, you know, in a sense, the, the victimization, the sense of resentment at one's victimization, you know, for being a member of a particular ethnic group is something that I think is is actually fairly uh, is fairly new. You know, it really does feel different. How how is this not just blaming the victim? Because if you have a bunch of people who have suffered as members of various oppressed groups in the United States, and they start saying, "We don't like that. We're asking for various changes," and other people say, "No, actually." <laughs> We we actually would like you to stay in your place. Um, those two things don't, that seems like a false equivalence. You know, one of those groups is oppressed and one isn't. And so... I, I guess there's a couple of things to say about this. You know, I think that one of the things that the Trump candidacy has um, has revealed is that there actually is a really big um, crisis in uh, the white working class. I mean, this really started in the black working class back in the 1970s. They were the ones that were hit first with deindustrialization. Uh, but, they're the ones that lost jobs in meatpacking and, you know, autos and, and but so But virtually all no, poor no, wait, people no, voted wait, for wait. Hillary Clinton no, and wait, two-thirds of Trump me, voters me, make me, over 50K. It's not the working no, no, class. Let me, no, let me finish this. Let me finish this thought. So, uh, you know, the decline in the working class began with African-Americans, but since then, it's spread, you know, uh, very, very dramatically to the white working class as well. So, you know, the latest figures, 72,000 Americans died of opioid-related, mostly opioid-related drug deaths uh, in the most recent year for which there's an estimate, which is a really remarkable figure, which means that male life expectancy in the United States has actually dropped. We're the only developed country, rich country, in which that is remotely true. So if you've got a college education or higher You've actually been doing pretty well over the last 20 years. And if you belong to that other group, uh, which is, you know, largely white, you've seen the, the floor fall from uh, out from under you. And so I just don't think that you can say that this group is a kind of uniform bunch of racists that have been around all this time. Of course there are. You know, of course there, there were always these people 
you know, that, that had those kinds of views. But, you know, what happened, I think, in the 2016 election is at least 100,000 of them switched their votes in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. And that was sufficient to put Donald Trump uh, in the White House. And so, you know, that group of, of voters actually still uh, matters quite a lot. And and actually, that also, I think, shows that a lot of them are not that racist, because a lot of those people actually voted for Obama once and possibly twice. And yet, you know, they they found something in the Trump message sufficiently uh, compelling that uh, they were willing to switch to the Republicans. I guess that raises the question whether you would distinguish between Trump voters and people practicing what you would call white identity politics. Um, and maybe you would. So I, I'm curious, actually, could you point to a, a public figure, someone who would be familiar to folks who represents a white identity politics who you'd not consider to be racist? <laughs> um yeah, I uh, I certainly know a lot of them. I, not a lot, but I can certainly identify people that I know in that category. I'm not uh, I'm not sure that I. Well, so you want a Trump voter who's not racist? I'm just trying to to get at the distinction you're making between someone who practices a white identity politics and what you're considering someone who's racist. Um, and, well, and so, okay. so, if you, so if you read either Kathy Kramer's book on Scott Walker and the politics of resentment about uh, Republican voters in, um, in, Mich- uh, in Wisconsin, or you read Arlie Hochschild's book, Strangers in Their Own Land, which, in which she did this ethnographic study, uh, of Tea Party voters in rural Louisiana. They're both very similar books. Uh, they cite, you know, they, they interviewed large numbers of people that voted conservative. And if you just read what they say, you know, I think a lot of them, I mean, they they don't sound very racist, you know, personally, but they still have this um, uh, sense of alienation that comes from being uh, seen, they, they think of themselves as being invisible to the elites. You know, Arlie Hochschild has this nice metaphor that, you know, the way they see themselves is they're standing patiently in a queue uh, in front of a door marked the American dream. And then they see various people like, you know, African-Americans and women and Syrian refugees that are all cutting in line ahead of them. And then, you know, so again, this is not saying that this is a true vision of what's happening, but, you know, it's a, I think it's a good way of explaining their perception of what's uh what's happening to them. And I just don't think if you read those kinds of ethnographic accounts that, you know, you say all of these people were just haters and, you know, Klansmen and, and, you know, racists right from the get-go. And I wonder also if they would necessarily describe themselves as, you know, when I think of white identity politics, I think of white nationalism. um, And I think of that as actually not representing those folks. But I want to speak to um, something else you raised, which is... um, the importance of universal programs. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the things you speak to is, um, in your opinion, the left has abandoned to some degree the pursuit of universal programs in order to deal with these sort of identity issues. And you say, in the United States, much of the left stopped thinking several decades ago about ambitious social policies that might help remedy the underlying conditions of the poor. A major exception to this trend was Obama whose Affordable Care Act was a milestone in U.S. social policy. 
the ACA's opponents tried to frame it as an identity issue, insinuating that the policy was designed by a black president to help his black constituents. You say, in fact, this was a universal policy. Now, this to me sounds like something straight out of Atwater's playbook, um, that you would counter health reform by suggesting that Obama was a black president appealing to black constituents. Um, it's not for us, the rest of us. Yeah. Um, and in fact, this suggests to me here the left is putting forward a universal program and it doesn't matter. The right still responds in the same way. Just suggests to me it's not exactly a yeah. response to identity politics. Well, look, I mean, right. I mean, by the time, you know, you get to that fight over the ACA, uh, the polarization has gotten to the point, you know, the, the thing about the ACA that is so p bizarre is that among the biggest beneficiaries are actually rural whites uh, in the South, right? Uh, and back in the 1930s, in the 1936 election, they voted overwhelmingly for Franklin Roosevelt and for the New Deal because, you know, he was actually doing a redistributive program that was going to help them, uh, like the TVA. And the question is why in 2016, you know, or in the last decade or so, so many of those people have been persuaded that the ACA, which is going to help them, uh, is actually socialism and, you know, evil and that the first priority of a president that they vote for it should be to dismantle the thing. And I think, you know, it's, it's complicated because it's based on a broader polarization in American politics that is, you know, not simply about identity issues, but I do think that identity, you know, has uh, been used very successfully, as you yourself just suggested, uh, 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 to uh, discredit uh, programs that are in fact universal and really should be helping all Americans uh, you know, and casting it in, you know, in these kinds of identity terms. Does that, you know, specifically respond to left-wing identity politics? You know, maybe, maybe not. But I do think that, you know, that's where the the, the, the focus on identity really began in, uh, uh, you know, in the 60s and 70s. Um, something that's so interesting about the last decade in politics is that actually the left is obsessed with economic inequality and that post-recession, We've seen, you know, young people identifying as socialists. We've seen the Democratic candidate field for president sort of vying for the most left or progressive position, however honest that may be. Do you think that, that we actually are moving into an era where economic inequality is the predominant concern of the left? Well, uh, I hope so. Uh, so one of the big... Um curious things after the financial crisis is the fact that it did not trigger a really uh, a widespread left-wing populism, as you would have expected, because crisis was created by all these fat cats on Wall Street. It hurts millions and millions of ordinary Americans. You had Occupy Wall Street and, you know, protests and so forth, but they never actually converted that uh, into votes and into real political power. What about and Bernie? Or Curiously, the only big social mobilization after 2008 was the Tea Party, which managed to capture, you know, uh, Congress in uh, the 2010 uh, election. And so one of the questions is actually why has the, you know, the, the, the left-wing form of populism been uh, so slow to emerge? The problem 
that the Democratic Party uh, is going to face, not so much in the upcoming November election, but in 2020, is this basic strategic choice of do I double down on the existing identity groups or do you actually try to get some of that white working class vote that used to vote very reliably Democratic? Do you get? Do you try to get them back in uh, in your column? You can actually win uh, an election on the on the on the first um, uh, strategy. Uh, I'm not sure that you can govern that easily uh, on the basis of that kind of strategy. And so I think that's really the kind of choice. And so yeah, sure, economic issues are really important. I think that has to be the core of any kind of progressive agenda. Uh, that you get real social policies out there that do some substantive good for. Uh, you know, people that are suffering. But the way you frame it, I think, is going to be very uh, important. And I think that, you know, it's it's a that's kind of the critical choice that that um, uh, people on the left need to think about. And the the final question I want to get in and I'll, I'll let you go is I think what I was really grappling with in your article that I was, I was sort of struggling to pin down is there is this identity politics question, and it feels to me in your article, what you're doing is you're saying the left came up with this idea and the right is just responding to it. Maybe not consciously, but the right is just responding to it. Whereas I look at it and I say the left has perceived injustices and responded by resisting those particular injustices. So in the framing that you have, how is this not just sort of, con- you know, concern trolling the left and absolving the right of some of the origins of, of this problem in segregation and so forth? Well, I, first of all, I don't think I, uh, that I absolve the right. I mean, I say that all of these identity groups began from real social injustices, right? The civil rights movement feminist movement, you know, the LGBT movement. I mean, all of these were responding to real marginalization in American society. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I mean, it was one of the big achievements of American 20th century politics that all these people that had been excluded, uh, you know, uh, increasingly became included both in the political system and in the social system. Uh, Again, the issue really is the framing of how you describe that injustice and whether you focus on, you know, the dignity part of it, or whether you get to the more substantive, you know, remedies for uh, for some of these uh, problems, and I, I guess the final thing I would say is that the single biggest problem I think we have in American politics is is just our fundamental polarization. You know, that's why we can't pass budgets. We can't do comprehensive immigration reform. I mean, there's just a whole list of things that our democratic political system should be able to have a rational deliberation about and then come to a kind of compromise, um, you know, policy. It's been unable to do that now for a good, you know, 10, 15 uh, years. And in addition to pushing back against the specific injustices, I think that national leaders need to think about integrative strategies such that you know, people can start to think of themselves as Americans and not you know, members of, uh, of particular groups, either on the left or the right, you know, leaving aside for the moment who's to blame, but clearly that's a phenomenon on, on both sides right now. That needs to be kind of the emphasis. And with your commitment to the New Deal, I think we've made a lefty of you. Yeah, well... <laughs> 
Identity politics is often described today as a narrowing down, forcing people into small groups, further alienating people from one another in an already fractured society. But in going back to the idea's origins, you can see a vision of solidarity that sprung from the experience of the Combahee River Collective, a reaching out and not a turning in. That's it for this week's show. Let us know what you think about identity politics or anything else at what's left at buzzfeed.com. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We put out new episodes every Monday. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference and helps new people learn about the show. What's Left is produced by me, Sarah Leonard, Patrick McMenamin, Ben Dalton, Dara Levy, Dan Bauza, and Cece Allen. What's Left is a production of BuzzFeed News Opinion. See you next week where we'll discuss what's left.